The Table Audio is made possible by the generous support of the John Templeton Foundation and the Templeton Religion Trust. What I want to encourage Christians is to stop trying to explain away evil and take people to the cross. And that is the strangeness of the Christian story. If someone's been abused, you don't say, this is why it happened, or look how you're going to grow through this. In their pain, you say, and they ask you, why would God do this? What does God think about this? Your only answer is, let me take you to a bleeding and dying Savior. I'm Evan Rosa, and you're listening to The Table Audio, a podcast about seeking Christian wisdom for life's big questions. Where were you, and what was happening around you when those two planes crashed into the World Trade Center on September 11th, 2001? I was just waking up in Berkeley, California, a freshman college student in flannel pajamas, watching CNN in utter disbelief and fear with my dormitory floor mates. The look of the sun that morning, the smell of the building, who was there, it's all quite clear to me. I don't know about you, but I remember the whole morning vividly. I have a few of these memories, some good, some bad, throughout all my life. I'm sure you can think of a handful of life events just like this, maybe that you're reliving right now with something close to that clarity and pinpoint accuracy of your current conscious experience. Psychologists call this kind of memory a flashbulb memory, coined in 1977 and still debated today about what kind of mechanism produces them and what model best explains them. Flashbulb memories seem to be triggered by events with two key factors, critical levels of surprise and consequentiality. That is, these events seem to come out of nowhere, and they matter a lot. My guest today describes his own deeply worrisome and wounding flashbulb memories in his recent award-winning theological memoir and meditation on pain and suffering. On June 9th, 2008, Kelly Capick, theologian at Covenant College near Chattanooga, Tennessee, had a sudden premonition of dread that something was very wrong with his wife, Tabitha, who was out on an errand. Coming home late, he was convinced that she'd been in a car accident. As he drove down Lookout Mountain to the city, he was relieved to see her driving back home. But when they got back to the house, she broke the news to him. No car wreck, but cancer. After months of diagnostics, surgery, treatments, and the weight of battling cancer as a family, in May 2010, Tabitha called Kelly from the side of the road, this time experiencing severe shooting pains through her limbs. It took six years to diagnose her connective tissue disease with symptoms of severe nerve pain in all four limbs. And eventually, erythromyalgia, the extremely rare, quote, man-on-fire syndrome. I met Tabitha when Kelly was a research fellow at the Center for Christian Thought in the spring of 2014 and can attest to Kelly's point in the book that in meeting and knowing Tabitha, you'd never guess she was going through debilitating physical pain at that very moment. We take so much for granted about the inner lives and sensations of others, don't we? In this conversation, Kelly Capick and I discuss his recent book, Embodied Hope, a theological meditation on pain and suffering, which won the Christianity Today 2008 Book of the Year Award for Theology and Ethics. Here, Kelly reflects on the linkage between theology and biography, the need for lament, the finitude and goodness of the human body, and the meaning of hope in the context of pain and suffering. I'm a big advocate that the reality is all theology is related to biography. 
It's probably Ugh. too too tight to say all theology is biography <laughs> or autobiography. You gotta say more about that. It's very close. I mean, all of us write out of our stories. And so the book Embodied Hope is me wrestling yeah. with questions before God and others. And with my wife's encouragement and blessing, it's just me trying to publicly wrestle. Cause I don't really know what I think until I have to write it. Yeah. That sounds weird to people, but it's having to go through the process of thinking and wrestling and asking questions and not just others asking me, but hearing my own heart and the questions and seeing when I don't like my own answers Sure. and having to write, that's, that's how I find out what I actually believe. I mean, there is that phenomenon of just listening to yourself mm. and maybe sometimes being surprised. There's like this, all this stuff about, you know, like the self-deception that is involved. Yeah, 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 yeah for sure. But it's like self-knowledge. Yeah. It's and I just find like I'm just obsessed with self-knowledge. Maybe <laughs> that's telling of my own biography. <laughs> well, uh, it's, I, it's very interesting you mentioned that because I think there are two sides. I mean, one is to ignore those inner voices and say they're irrelevant. Yeah. And the other is to let them dictate. So even in the book, there's a, a chapter on confession. And yeah. I've I've come to believe that confession really matters but not because someone who's suffering has sinned more or anything, but they're more aware of the brokenness of the world. They tend to have, because yeah. they're more vulnerable. And so the psalmist kind of says, speaks to himself as, you know, basically trust in the mercies of God. And I do yeah. think we need to preach to ourselves, but I- There's that self-talk. Yeah, self-talk. And, and I talk about, I think that's helpful, but it's not enough because we don't trust ourselves. So I, it gets back to the community part. I think we need yeah. other people to look to look Evan in the eyes and say, Oh, brother, it's enough. You're yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. You know, you, the father delights in you. You can say it to yourself all day, but it's when someone looks you in the eye and says it and puts her hand on you, then then I think we can believe it. In some sense, like your book kind of begins and has its end mm -hmm. in an embodiment. Mm -hmm. And this has been a theme for you for like the last several years mm -hmm. in some sense. So how can you kind of get us started on thinking through just that kind of element that like we're all built for a kind of embodied relationship. I mean, this is to be human. So mm. our humanness includes this apparently necessary component of embodiedness, of physicality yeah. and of, and perhaps thereby of relatedness, Yeah. right? We don't know each other through our thoughts. Yeah. We know each other through our perceptions and our yeah. sense experience and of touch and of, yep. you know, all these things are heavily reliant on embodiment. Give us that like kind of high level view dig down whatever you want. Sure. But like, how do you think about embodiment and where is that kind of placed in your theology and how, do, how is it kind of finding its expressions? Yeah, it's a great question. The reason this relates to suffering is we don't actually tend to be aware of our bodies until they're hurting, until they're crying out. I mean, the pain mechanism yeah. is a gift actually. Um, oh, indeed. Uh, there's a great book some parts are controversial, but a great book on the gift of pain and uh, mm. is kind of exploring mm. leprosy and other things. So pain itself tends to make us more aware of our bodies. One of the challenges for people who suffer, though, is then to start to hate your body, to think that your body yeah. is the problem. And as Christians and classic Christian orthodoxy, we would say that, that our bodies are good, that God made them good, but that something has happened, that, that there is a brokenness to that. So but look, there's this struggle with Gnosticism throughout the oh, history yeah. of the church too. Absolutely. So I mean, like you're you're honing in on something that is a false inference that right. has been a, a plague yeah. to Christian ethics for a long time. Oh yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, this relates to this book on suffering I did in my current research right now, which is on finitude. The way in, I, w- I would talk about, so Dietrich Bonhoeffer explores this really richly in a volume he has on the creation fall. And, and what Bonhoeffer says is, even before you would talk about sin, humans were made with dependency. And our bodies represent that. We are limited by space. We're limited in time. We need each other to be able to eat, to be able to perform, to be able to yeah. live. And we confuse dependency with sin all the time. Huh. And the way I would put it is we confuse finitude and sin all the sure, time. Sure. Well, the reason that matters is then Bonhoeffer says, sin doesn't make you dependent. Sin perverts the dependency. So now rather than viewing your neighbor in neighbor love, I need you, you need me. Now we view our neighbor as a threat. So either we need to win our neighbor, whether Mm -hmm. it's a spouse or an enemy or whatever, we need to win, we need to conquer them, or we need to ignore them. But they make demands on us and those demands are a problem. Right, because every every dependency implies someone who's like responsible. Yeah. Right, dependency yeah. re- implies some sense of responsibility, if you go willfully, at least, I suppose. Well, and and what he's getting at is really the heart of kind of Western culture in the last several hundred years, where we've bought into this myth of rugged individualism yes. and the autonomous self, and I make myself, I am myself, no one should tell me. And that just doesn't fit with reality of how we live. Yeah. And all that happens in suffering is it makes us much more aware of that if, if we're paying attention. This is the kind of pride that kind of is at the core of maybe the modern mm. project Yeah, that I can do it myself. Yep. And really that pride has been <laughs> there all along. I mean, like mm. it's, it's as Augustine says, I mean, that's the seed of sin. I think you're honing in on something important here that the gift of pain, if there is a gift there, is to kind of develop a, a sense of mindful awareness of the body, mm. that we are familiar with our limits and our finitude our dependency, as Bonhoeffer says, but then it can go wrong. Yeah. And it can veer toward hatred of the body. Mm. It can go toward a kind of desire for escaping Mm. the body and perhaps just escaping pain and suffering at all levels, which sounds quite noble. No one wants to suffer. Suffering is something to be avoided, but it also kind of invites us into a kind of unrealistic unreality about, about the nature of it. I mentioned the book on the gift of pain because I think there is something there neurologically and otherwise that is helpful to keep in mind. That's not really my focus. And I do worry a little bit about that emphasis. So I think it's true. There's a truth there we should not be ignorant of. The danger when we talk too much about the gift of pain is we can start to justify evil. (laughs) And so this is where, like when we've talked about lament, the Christian tradition has lament, and it's very important in the Psalms and elsewhere and in the tradition. And as soon as you admit to the importance of lament, you're admitting something's not right. We're not living in shalom. So th- we do want to say God made our bodies so that, you know, if, if you put your hand in fire, you pull it out. Right. <laughs> There's real danger when you lose those abilities. But at the same time, we also don't want to say suffering in the form of living through abuse right, or something like that is a good thing. These are not goods. So that's just part of having to navigate through that carefully. And the experience of it, right? The the ability to identify and locate and become aware of, right? Mm. As opposed to numbing the pain and numbing the suffering. This is where like we kind of get into hot water when we begin to talk about 
the goods that can emerge from suffering. Mm. We want to stipulate, no, no, this is this is the enemy. Right. Suffering is the enemy of humanity. Right. We are fragile. And so we want to, we, and this is the part of the salvation story. Mm. I mean, uh, to wipe away. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> the tears. Yeah. To wipe away grief. And yes, there is lament and grief in this world, but we have a vision of what's before us. Right. So let's, let's like kind of get into that like yeah. hot water business yeah. of like, there are all sorts of suggestions throughout the history of philosophy and theology that suffering has a purpose mm. and that there can be meaning found in it or that there can be growth through adversity. So maybe we can utilize some of the tools of lament and hope, and maybe we need to get into a little bit of theodicy mm-hmm. and the problems there. But what are some of your starting points for thinking about the problem of growing through suffering? Well, to be perfectly honest with you, I, I get a little nervous when we start there. Or, you know, and definitely God can and does often grow us through suffering. But I always kind of think of the Genesis 50-20, you know, you intended it for evil, God God brings about good through it, right? It yeah. is not a good thing that his brothers threw him in a pit and sold him into slavery. It's not a good thing that he was treated so harshly, but God can and does bring about good through things that are evil. And so I want to say both of those things, we really can grow. And I mean, and, who's doing the speaking in yeah. Genesis 50 is like, that's important. Yeah, know? it's it the one who's from gone through. Yeah, exactly. No, that's right. And and so that's the problem with theodicies. People often think when their friend is suffering that they need to explain why this is happening. And I would basically say, I think theodicies have a place in the classroom. It's a legitimate philosophical discussion. It has no place in the home of the griever. Huh. Because even when they're asking what appear to be questions about, please defend God, you should not play by those rules because they're really, despite their words saying, tell me why God did this, you and I are not qualified to answer that. And as soon as you do, we're going to get the wrath because we're not qualified. You know, and Christians fall into this all the time and say, well, maybe your child is dying of cancer because the nurse is going to become a Christian through it. Well, <laughs> that's, that's a terrible thing to say, right? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, Christians do this all the time. They, they come up with justifications. Well, what happens if, what happens if your child dies that nurse who became a Christian abandons the faith two years later. What happens if this terrible suffering all of a sudden, say, people say, well, look, it brought renewal to the church. And six months later, the church is back where it was. Yeah, what if, what if the nurse <laughs> comes to realize like the problems of theodicy and, and yeah. like, starts to think, is my salvation dependent on the suffering of this yeah, child? Yeah, exactly. So I, we have to admit our ignorance. We, we really don't know. Why, yeah. do you, why do you think this is a tendency? Is it a human tendency? Is it a Christian tendency? I mean, what makes us want to mm. answer yeah. pain with theodicy? Christians tend that way, but there is probably something human about it because we want to believe we live in a meaningful world. Yeah. And part of what's interesting about Christian theology is it says that God is sovereign. And there's debates about what that means in different traditions. But really, we want to say God is sovereign. He's the king. And so we don't want to say everything in his kingdom, everything in the world that's happening, he himself is doing it. So he is, you know, if someone gets abused, we're not going to say God is doing that. But it happens under his sovereignty. And that gives a strange dynamic in Christian theology because it allows you to ultimately not blame God. But in the end, you still have to wrestle with him because we do want to say, I mean, some Christian theologians will deny this, but the classic tradition always wants to say, at a minimum, he could have prevented it. Yeah. So the reality is we do have to wrestle. Those are really hard questions. Yeah. And so 
I think it brings up deep pastoral questions like, is God good? Yeah. And so when people are dealing with serious suffering, whether it's their own or someone else, they often will say, I just don't even know if I believe God exists anymore. And I would encourage people to hear those words as often. They're really not saying philosophically, I'm denying a deity. That often is code language for, I just don't believe he's good. To trust him. I just, I just can't imagine what kind of God we're dealing with. And what I want to encourage Christians is to stop trying to explain away evil and take people to the cross. And that is the strangeness of the Christian story. Yeah. So when someone I love says, that you go there. This yeah, is utterly strange. It's so strange. But when when someone, if someone, someone's been abused, someone's been raped, you don't say, this is why it happened, or look how you're going to grow through this. In their pain, you say, and they ask you, why would God do this? What does God think about this? Your only answer is, let me take you to a bleeding and dying Savior. Yeah. yeah, what he thinks about this is he wept and he took it so seriously, he came and died. Mm-hmm. And yet he rose bodily, physically, and there is hope. And the, the cross and resurrection allow radical honesty about our pain while also maintaining hope. And what happens is we tend to choose hope and then eliminate the honesty yeah. or the honesty and eliminate hope. And we, uh, we shouldn't choose. Lament allows us to be as brutally honest as we need to be and yet still have hope. Stay tuned. After the break, Kelly and I discuss the deep need to correct the mistaken thought that grief and hope are at odds, seeking what he calls a, quote, defiant hope, which is both lamenting and hopeful. Hope that doesn't undermine, but makes sense of lament. So stay with us. Hello, friends. Thanks for giving us a place at your table. It's a gift for us to bring these conversations into your life, and we hope you find them meaningful and memorable. Throughout season three of the podcast, we'll be offering a brand new online course. It's free to all of our email newsletter subscribers and free to sign up. It's called Charting a Course Through Grief, and it's all about providing much-needed perspectives on dealing with the pain of loss. This stuff isn't easy to talk about, but we need to. Not far beneath the shiny facade of the smiley, how-you-doing-I'm-fine version of American happiness. We all know that darkness, that loneliness, and the real pain that's there. This course doesn't take the place of counseling, therapy, or healing of loving encounters with God, friends, and family. But there are words, beautiful words, and ideas and stories that provide for us companions for our journeys of grief. And it's right in line with our goal to continue to seek Christian wisdom for life's biggest questions. So we've curated an email-based course that brings a weekly variety of perspectives on depression, disability, disease, and death. Bringing Christian resources for healing and growth within and through and despite these painful events of life. We're developing new content, dusting off old content, as well as providing helpful resources and references for continued education and exploration. Charting a course through grief is totally free. So head over to cct.biola.edu slash grief and sign up today. We don't see eye to eye on everything, but all of us will someday encounter deep personal suffering. So here's an opportunity for us to learn, pray, meditate, and open up to the opportunities for growth in the face of suffering. Check out the link and description in the show notes or head over to our website to sign up. Again, that's cct.biola.edu slash grief. And of course, thanks for listening to The Table Audio. Now back to our conversation. You kind of introduced this different frame for thinking about the interplay between lament and hope. Mm. We have, 
I, I think there's kind of an unreflective way of thinking about lament and hope that's binary or it's on only one spectrum. Yeah, that's right. But by, you add another dimension. You're right. And so I wonder if you can explain some of those dimensions and kind of just dig in a little bit because I think you're correcting an important mistake and you're showing that lament and hope can exist together. Right. And I think this is where most of us start off in the wrong place. Right. We feel like the moment that we go toward grief, public lament, mm. we're in some way denying right. goodness. We're denying right. the possibility of redemption. We're denying hopefulness. Right. That's at least part of the feeling, but right. it's based on an error. Yeah. I wonder if you could just say, explain. Yeah, I mean, the book has a graphic which might be more helpful, but but basically, on the one hand, if if you treat it as binary and you only have lament, which is a way of saying you only have this ache about the pain in the world and in your life, you end up in utter despair. On the other hand, if you only have what people are calling hope and you don't talk about lament, you have a naive optimism. And what the Bible does is it doesn't pit those against one another. We have, a, we have this, this defiant hope, <laughs> a defiant hope, which is both lamenting and hopeful. And the hope does not undermine the lament. It makes sense of the lament. And my wife is yeah. very helpful. Yeah. One time she said to me, you know, people ask about pain and she, she's gone through uh, quite a bit physical mm -hmm. suffering yeah. and people yeah. ask, you know, when do you get past it or whatever? And she talks about some of these things more like geography than a timeline. It's a place. Ooh, and so, so yeah, when you, when you're, you know, it's interesting. So we, we always say, word. don't be Job's friends, you know, like sure. they weren't patient, but when you actually read Job, Job's friends at first, they put ashes on themselves. They're together. They were, they hung out. But then when the time of grief ended, they said, okay, now suck it up, Job. It's time to move on. Yeah. Well, we tend to have those timelines too. So anyway, she says it's, it's geography, it's a place. And when that's very real and near, we tend to live in that place for a long time. But hopefully by God's grace, through the community, through time, we leave that place. But we never leave it completely behind. We revisit it. And often it surprises us when we find ourselves in that location. Yeah. But, but I think that's very helpful because that location's always there. People want to say, well, are you past your grief? <laughs> that yeah. is a, that's, that's part of my story now. It's a location. And sometimes I revisit it. Sometimes I want to, sometimes I don't. It's but a it's place there. on your map. It's a place on your map. And so yeah. in grace, you don't just have to live there all the time. But let's not pretend it goes away, basically. Hope that makes some sense. It does. It does. Um, we, I, I want to kind of hang out even on the kind of uh, the outside-in perspective, right? Mm. So in some sense, there's very deep practical measures that we need to talk about here, mm. about the experience of suffering from the first-person perspective and then from the, you know, the third-person perspective, mm. Or, or second person. Relatedness to mm. suffering is deeply different. It's a different kind of suffering yeah. undergone when you are related to a first-person sufferer yeah. than when you are yourself the first-person sufferer. Sure. And so you get comments. I, I'm, I, I'm coming back to this because the sense that you get from, you know, when, when Joseph can say what you intended for evil, God intended for good, mm he's allowed to say that as the first person sufferer. Right. 
the second person sufferer, the third person. <laughs> we hear that. We say, oh, yeah. could this be a scenario? Right. And then we, we feel so impatient, mm. right? Uh, we feel impatient with suffering of others. Mm. And so we're trying to help work them through because we, we acknowledge it's bad. We want to see them get through it. Right. But that impatience is, is really yep. effective. Mm. And I wonder if that's this a vice that we need to deal with. Yeah. Even in our contemporary society, mm. which is more and more fast paced. Yep. We're seeking control, yep. autonomy. This is the medical technological revolution. We want to eliminate suffering by our own agency. Yeah, we don't understand our bodies. So we we really do. We talk about this all the time. Like even the metaphors we talk about our bodies, I need to recharge. I, you know, I'm spent. <laughs> yeah. They're economic, they're technological, and they're inhumane. Okay. We are not our cell phones. You don't just plug us in for a couple hours and we're fine. We kind of uh, still treat it that way. And as long as you're functioning fine, as long as you're not having any big hiccups, you can live in that. But that's a myth. And that myth is not sustainable. Yeah, it falls apart once you yep. really do encounter some kind of deep right. trouble. And and all of us encounter it at some point or, or not. All of us get older, aches and pains. So th- these things can heighten our awareness. But I'm let me go back to what you were Please. where you were going. Yeah. I, I really think the community is crucial here. Yeah. Because one of the chapters is on faith, hope, and love. And one of the things that I became interested in is how how these ideas of faith, hope, and love really can go together. We, again, think of them individually. I have faith in God. I trust God. Well, when you're suffering or you're with people who are suffering, it's very common we don't believe. I have a a friend who's a retired theologian. He used to tell me, you know, Kelly, I wake up every morning an atheist. And at nine in the morning, I might be a monotheist. (laughs) And and by noon, I'm a Christian. and I love that because, off, man, that by, that speaks to truth. <laughs> but because there is this problem where we think, because especially in the Protestant world, we rightly emphasize the importance of faith. That wrongly then can make it all dependent on some kind of cognitive function on our behalf. Sure. Do I have enough faith? What does that faith mean? What does it look like? Rather than this bigger community, like, the faith is not something we generate. It's something we receive. It's a gift from God. It's, yes. it's the faith. It's the faith of the saints before. It's the the church's faith. So I need to have faith, but it's the community. So what happens then is when you're suffering, often we struggle to have faith. Yeah. And the, the people of God believe for us. And in that way, they represent us to God. And they believe when we can't. And similarly with hope, when we're suffering, it's very hard to generate hope, to cling to hope. But the people of God can embody hope for us. And, and in that way, they represent God to us. Yeah. And then love is the context. Otherwise, it becomes plastic. Yeah. And then what, what it does is it creates, to think in the geographical metaphor, it creates mm. space. Yes. A kind of freedom to move about mm. in that experience mm. and give, give the suffering, give the pain its fullness mm. and, and allow it to work itself out. Right. Instead of adopting a perspective where the faith depends on me. Yeah. It depends on my ability to muscle through, my ability to find answers to why, my ability to drum up enough character, drum up enough resilience or right. virtue to get through it. But that is, I mean, I love, I love the emphasis here on community. Yeah. 
on on the role of of supporting one another through our struggles and through our sufferings. Again, like looking into the suffering of others. Well, let, let me Let's give a real practical. I'll yeah. give you a real practical example because researching this, speaking about it publicly, and then writing the book, I've I've done a lot of interviews. A lot of people write me letters. A lot of conversations. And I think it would surprise a lot of Christians to realize people who are seriously suffering, whether from surgeries or from psychological, other other kind of things, they commonly will say the hardest time for them in their week is Sunday morning, uh, actually going to church, yeah. which is interesting, especially people with pain. And I have people who will say, for me, I'm not really able to stand up during the singing and I feel embarrassed and it makes me self-conscious. And, and the story after story about that, just, just so much... And I think this betrays the fact of even as we're together, we're still thinking individually. And so if we could help our whole communities in that way serve the sufferer, where the reality sometimes my wife and I have been at church and there's no way we can sing. We don't feel it, we don't think it, there's no way. But but to be able to sit there and hear the people of God sing when we can't, when they when they pray when we can't, that's a gift. But they have to be comfortable with us not, and we have to be comfortable with them representing us, that kind of thing. Like we still need to go, God still meets us. This is a special kind of thing he does in a mysterious kind of way. But I just wish we could think more communally about that stuff. Yeah, and this comes back even to the cultural acceptance of the honesty of lament. Mm. Because if if, if we're in a community in which flourishing is set by a standard of outward appearance, set by a standard of spoken positivity as opposed to spoken negativity. Mm. And I think we all are familiar with being around people who are genuinely suffering Mm. and hearing so much of that, that it makes us uncomfortable. Yeah, sure. So we look in on that suffering and the suffering in our communities represent to us these really painful reminders of our finitude. Absolutely. This is why we don't bring people into our homes when they're dying. We leave them in hospitals. That's right. We don't want the smells. We don't want the taste. The we sounds. farm out our old people yeah, to it's, old it's, folks. Homes. It's really, it's really brutal, yeah. and um, it, it raises all kinds of questions. Um, so, what what can be said about practical measures we can take yeah. to to kind of express the theology that you're trying to get after mm. here? So, you know, what are the practices that you have in mind for first person sufferers, for people in their lives? Yeah. What can we do as a culture to to begin to unravel some of these individualistic mm. strains? How can we create the space for both lament and hope? And- yeah, no, it's a good question. I mean, the the last chapter of the book really kind of uses some key words to go through some of that. But I'll just mention a few. I, I think one is commitment. That word actually doesn't sound very good in our day. It sounds like duty, and duty is very sure, negative sure. bias. There's actually a really beautiful thing about commitment. A gentleman I know, he's in his 50s, his wife's in her 50s. She was a college professor, very able, and all of a sudden was hit with early Alzheimer's and basically is around the house all day and needs someone to be with her all the time. So when he's not working, he's with her all the time. He has to set out all of her clothes. He has to, I mean, this this is a massive task. And there is something as painful as that is and filled with legitimate lament. There's something beautiful when he talks about just, he's committed to her, he loves her. And that just makes it, there is something freeing about that. Like, okay, 
this is what I need to do. And we in America, like when we lived in Britain and this is still Britain, I'd go to the grocery store and there'd be three kinds of floss. I'd pick it up, right? When we came back to the States after living overseas, I, my wife found me at Target 10 minutes after she sent me to get floss. I was there. I had no, I was overwhelmed. There were 30 different kinds of floss. I had no, well, what if I get the wrong one, yeah, what, and it just all, all the possibilities. <laughs> well, in some ways, commitment actually allows you to go, okay, this is what I need to do. It doesn't answer all the questions. The way we love those who suffer is we remain faithful. And we have to remember that it's not just us caring for them. They actually care for us. Just like, just like if we, when we're engaged with people in poverty, it cannot just be, we're heroes, we're here to help you. They teach us, they give to us. Well, this is huge. And that's the same thing with the sufferer. It perverts the whole thing when we think we're the hero, always giving to the sufferer. No, 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 they teach us about God. They teach us about ourselves. It's gotta be mutual. These are where the hard lessons are. Mm. And this is where it's, it's hard to go willingly mm. here. But there are these really broad cultural strains that suggest that we can't learn anything from suffering. Mm. We can't learn anything from the sufferer. And that's why we end up putting them away. We, mm. we, we hide them. Mm. And we hide our own suffering because we don't think we have much to offer others when right. we're suffering. Yep. Right? When we experience that dependence. Right. The feeling is, oh, I don't want to be a burden. Right. I remember I read this short article by Gilbert Mylander a while ago. Mm. He said, I want to be a burden. Mm. He wants to be a burden yeah, on his yeah, kids. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think, I think he, yeah. he's joking at some extent, but he's really serious yep. about the ethic of interconnectedness and relatedness yeah. and the way things go as people enter their suffering years, right. their, their elderly years, or yeah. it doesn't, it needn't be uh, associated with age, just periods of time where. Yeah, it was very interesting recently listening to an economist, it was on CNN or something. And the issue they were talking about is grown children living at home, right? Which <laughs> yeah. all of our gut reactions is like, that's atrocious, don't do that. But this was a contrarian <laughs> actually. And he brought, it was so interesting to hear him because especially anyways, he said, you know, for most of the history of the world and for most of the world, even to this day, that's very normal. Of course. And then he showed a clip of a politician saying, they were talking about healthcare and different things like, and, and the politician literally said, what, you want grandma living in your back bedroom? And then the economist just said, well, m maybe that's not such a bad thing. Yes. <laughs> and, and he's talking about it as an economist, like, can you imagine that the grandparents involved with your kids and just think about all the money that would save with daycare, you know? And he talked about the relations and the mutual dependence and all that. And I just thought that's just a great example of we are living in this myth of autonomy. Now, obviously, yeah. you got yeah. a 35-year-old at home who's not paying rent. That, that's all a problem, you know? <laughs> Stop playing video games. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not denying you got to ask these honest questions. But it could be, no, it's very normal. Someone comes, they live, they save up money, they, they're, they're helping the community, they're helping the family. Yeah. This actually can allow for flourishing. Yes. And we, we make people, especially single people, feel like they're bad. If they have, and it, that's an, that's a, this American dream mythology yeah. that for many of us is stronger than any theologically informed impulses. Yeah, it is connected. I mean, I there are these big, broad movements that really affect the way that we talk about and encounter suffering. Yeah, we have to kind of to do good diagnosis. You've got to go to that level about 
what are these elements that are preventing the kind of family commitment, say? Yeah. Or the commitment to bringing in and inviting inward the sufferer? Well, and just even when we don't do this, we're ill-equipped to be honest about other people's pain. And so you get something like Charlottesville, or you get these social injustice issues where people look at it and go, why, why are people so upset? Yeah. It's right. actually related. If you it have not developed the, the muscles of lament and of empathy, then you don't, because if you yourself haven't experienced it, you think it's not real. And that's a denial of our world. That's yeah. a myth. And that's a problem. Yeah. So part of the way we deal with this is through the the Christian practice of witness. We We testify to the reality of the hurt but then we also testify that in the midst of it, God still shows up and is faithful. And we don't have to pick between those. And so we, and God is faithful doesn't mean that if this is an evil thing, it's a good thing. It just means that God can and does even show up there and his grace can be found even in the midst of the hurt and yeah. suffering. Yeah, and that is what makes it so beautifully strange. Yeah, and we need the community to tell a story. An individual can't do it on their own. Yeah. Can't live it, not just tell it, can't live it on their own. Thanks for listening, friends, and peace to you. Audio is hosted and produced by me, Evan Rosa, and is a resource of the Biola University Center for Christian Thought, which is sponsored by generous grants from the John Templeton Foundation, Templeton Religion Trust, and the Blankenmeyer Foundation. Theme music is by The Brilliance. Production and engineering by the Narrativo Group. More info at narrativogroup.com. Edited and mixed by TJ Hester. To subscribe to The Table Audio, check us out on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you like this episode, we're hoping that you'll share it and discuss it with your friends and family. It's a great way to support what we're trying to do here. On Twitter, you can follow me at Evan Sub Rosa, and you can follow the Center for Christian Thought at Biola CCT, or visit our website, cct.biola.edu. Look into the face of my enemy, I see my